Hi, my name is Tony. And I'm Chris. And we love pop culture. We often find ourselves discussing film, music, literature, and more, going down the rabbit hole of how everything is connected. We want to share those moments in pop culture that are seemingly unrelated, but connected by just a few links. Welcome to the Pop Culture Connection. All right. Welcome back to another episode of the Pop Culture Connection. With you, as always, is Tony. And I'm Chris. We're going to be today talking about Clue and Naked Lunch and the connections between those two pretty different things. Yeah. Before we do kind of this is what's going on in the world of pop culture right now. Uh, first thing I wanted to do was kind of give a thank you to Chris Hardwick and the ID10T podcast mm-hmm. uh, for mentioning us and our podcast recently on the show. He, he said our name. Uh, we're part of the zeitgeist now. It feels yeah. good. Loving it. Uh, I don't know if I'm ready to be part of the zeitgeist. We can be part of the poltergeist. Yeah, let's do that first. Which will that'll fit in for the next couple episodes we're getting. Um, but they do have a nice community corkboard segment where you can kind of say, "Hey, I'm doing this thing," and it was nice that he kind of read us about it. and he got it. He knew uh, automatically what the the gist of it was. It actually referenced the show Connections that was on the Learning Channel in the mid '90s, which mm-hmm. is where I kind of came up with the idea, right? Um, just through pop culture, and that was more history and taking inventions or certain events in history and connecting them, which I loved. There was a PC game, kind of Myst-style PC yeah. game that I enjoyed playing. So that was awesome. I was happy. Certainly. Um, and then I did learn about, take, wanted to take time to mention the George A. Ramiro Foundation. Uh, they're currently taking donations and doing donation matching until October 31st. Uh, so the George A. Romero Foundation helps preserve and save George Romero's films. And they also provide scholarships and fellowships to independent filmmakers and um, offer some more chances, especially in that area of Pennsylvania um, and in the area of horror. They offer an award um, in the name of George Romero. We talked about him on our Willard Scott Night of the Living Dead episode. Again, he was the godfather of horror. Uh, we'll talk about him in some upcoming Halloween horror movie connection episodes. Yeah, very cool scholarship. So if you're uh, in Western PA uh, and you're a budding filmmaker, the horror genre, that foundation could really help you out. So, yeah, check out the George A. Ramiro Foundation.org for more information. Um, but um, I was excited to see that that's a thing. I didn't have too much else going on right now. I did see that Eminem opened a restaurant in Detroit called Mom's Spaghetti. Oh, is that right? We're going to head up there and get some uh, spaghetti? I think that is the uh, restaurant with the... Can you think of any other restaurant chain that exists that's based on one lyric from one One song? One lyric, no. Ruby Tuesday, maybe. Maybe. But... I mean, Kenny Rogers had his thing. Right. He was... was it wasn't based off a song of his. No, it wasn't the gambler. Right. Like, you know when to fold them pancakes <laughs> or crepes. You're, you're onto something. <laughs> I come up with so many good ideas when we're on here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we might have to check it out. Maybe it could be good good spaghetti. 
I thought the idea of that song, though, was that he came up in hard times and it was kind of, she just kind of threw it together. So they right. had, is that what the, he's selling yeah, like there? Egg just noodles kind of crap, and ketchup. Crappy spaghetti? I don't know. It, 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 yeah, because it sounds like he's burping it up because he's nervous mm-hmm. and it was like she threw together this, like, why, yeah, it's, it's very strange. Yeah, just something you, you eat before a hard night of drinking, so when it comes back up later, you can be like, I did it, Eminem. I'm just like you. So I think we need to open up uh, our own restaurant uh, based on based on a song and goodbye Yellow Brick Road pizza. <laughs> Some or the the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald mm, tacos. Tasty. So yeah, I don't know if you're in that area and you go check out Mom's Spaghetti Restaurant. Let us know uh, how it is. Uh, we're at the PCCcast at gmail.com. We're at Twitter at the PCCcast. Uh, we're at Instagram under the Pop Culture Connection. You can find our Facebook group too. Really, the only other thing I had, I saw that there's a new documentary about Dr. Fauci, and apparently he said that the it's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business line from The Godfather has helped guide his career, make him a little more grounded and saying when someone attacks, I don't immediately fight back. That's not my style. You don't 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 get into the fray. Well, you know, it depends if you take it personally. I focus totally on the health and the welfare of the people of this country. That's what I've devoted 50 years of my career towards, 36 of which were as the director of this institute. That's the only thing I really care about. That other stuff, you know, it's like in The Godfather. Nothing personal, strictly business. As far as I'm concerned, <laughs> you know, I just want to do my job. This is a, he's doing the, his own documentary? No, this was a documentary about him. Pro Fauci, or is it from the kind of right to hang him by the neck? I think it's, it's pro. It's just, here's who he is. Gotcha. Where he came from. Uh, I, just because we talked about The Godfather recently, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I am uh, have no strong opinions either way of, about this guy. So, for some reason, I know that's anti-American at this point to not feel strongly one way or the other. Well, I don't understand. So, you hate him? I don't hate him, and I, I don't necessarily like him. So, you're a communist, and right. you love him. Right. Right. Yeah. It's um, The people in the middle get shafted nowadays because we can't. Just say, yeah, there's good and bad. Yeah, I don't know much about him. Seems like he's doing okay. Right. If you're not screaming in caps lock on Twitter, you don't have a valid (laughs) opinion anymore. Um, But I think that's cool because it it shows you how pop culture does bleed into everyday life. Even someone who is a prominent public figure and a movie as big as The Godfather still being referenced today. Sure. And that kind of that and make him an offer he can't refuse are part of, you know, American lexicon or all actually all over the world. See, so you can learn stuff from movies. Yeah, I've learned a lot. There's a lot I've learned from movies. Sure. Don't feed them after midnight. Right, never do. Wax on, wax off. Right, and a few others. And some, and some others that we'll talk about at some point, I'm sure. But did you have anything going on? Well, like I said in our last episode, I, um, I rely on you to keep me abreast of everything that's happening because I find peace of mind is more easily attainable when you you don't uh, pay attention anymore. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I try to focus on things that I enjoy and push out the rest if I can. I figure if something is uh, important important enough, I'll hear about it. Yeah. At some point. Right. I, yeah. There's, there's enough of it out there that it's permeates everything we do. And when you go digging for it or looking for it, it can lead down some dark paths. Yeah, I'm just happy it's fall and the fall beers and drinks are here, even though it's 80 degrees today and it doesn't really feel like it. And uh, Mother Nature has us all confused. Eventually, yeah, it'll settle in and uh, it's the Halloween season. So very nice. We're in Northeast Ohio, so there's the saying, if you don't like the weather, just wait five minutes. We don't know if it's going to be 80, 35 and rainy, 75 and crystal clear. We're all three in one day. It can happen. I'll take it. But it's my favorite time of year. We are enjoying some Fat Heads Brewery Mm -hmm. Jedi Puppies. Jedi Puppies. Outer Space Jedi Puppies. Which is... Pretty darn good. I'm about to tuck into some of the Southern Tier Pumpkin. And if you haven't had that, kids, uh, you got to go get you some. Yeah. We're not endorsed by Southern Tier in any way, but it is a damn good beer. Probably one of my favorites. Not always a fan of flavored beers, but uh, the Pumpkin is excellent and it's perfect for this time of year. It makes you feel like you're drinking Halloween. Yes. Um, Speaking of that, I did see is the new Halloween Kills is coming out soon, and yes. I know we're both excited about that. Yeah, I do want to check that out. Trying to avoid any early reviews, spoilers, or the later trailers that they put out. Uh, I uh, just recently have been seeing a meme that's been going around that has the kill counts mm-hmm. from all of the slasher films, but it looks like it stops at 2009. With That's Jason. the number of kills. Two thousand and nine. That, that was, um, and that was malaria. The movie. <laughs> no, I'm thinking of everyday life. Yeah, it looks like um, Jason Voorhees has the highest kill count amongst his films. Cumulative. Cumulative oh, across okay. all uh, the remake and all the sequels. Well, Michael's got some work to do then. And I believe because that meme doesn't count the 2018 okay. Halloween. I believe between that and this next one, uh, Michael Miles will now be the taking the lead in number of kills across all films. Yeah. And then he's going to fight Godzilla in the next movie. I, it's, it's either that or he's going to, you know, he, haven't, he hasn't been to the Japan or the Old West or space yet, which yeah, seem to be the, the, they waiting for? the sequel trends that they do. Well, I can predict. I'm going to make a bold prediction here that... Uh, Somebody is going to get murdered in this film. I'll just take a, that action. Just a hunch. We'll see. I also saw, I don't know if this is real or not, but someone had a screenshot. Um, there are websites you can go and get petitions. You can make your own petition for anything you want and have internet signatures. They're basically pointless. Sure. They make don't, you feel better. Right. But someone had created one. Because in the trailer for Halloween Kills, it shows Michael killing firemen who are coming to put out the fire at the house from the previous film. Spoiler alert. And he said that his family is firefighters and he's training to be a firefighter and he doesn't think Michael should kill 
firefighters. Okay. He's good with babysitters. Right. Teenage girls, fine. Teenage girls, teenage boys, cops. Right. Those are across all. Across multiple those films. Free range. However, if they're firefighters, that isn't okay. And I want that movie remade. I want those scenes reshot and had it have them be paramedics. Because that would be all okay. Right. And maybe we can do like Spielberg did with E.T. and just kind of CGI yeah. them. Yeah. He's helping them. They're the cab drivers. He's giving them... A flashlight. Yes. Yeah. Like, he's very nice to fireman. That's the one person he yeah. doesn't get. That's why he, he finally speaks. He says, thank you. That would be an interesting twist. Mm. If that did happen, I think that would blow my mind. Because I, I I'm not expecting many surprises in the sequels. Maybe that's why I like them. Because you know what you're getting. Yeah, it's familiar. It's kind of like a cozy blanket that yeah. will murder you. You warm up, you cuddle up, and you see dumb teenagers get stabbed. Um, something that I want to talk about in our next episode, which I'll be bringing up, was they almost did a Michael versus Pinhead movie. So mm-hmm. we'll talk about that a little bit more, but interesting yeah. idea to see what would have happened there. But uh, we're talking about Clue and Naked Lunch tonight now. For my money, that's going to be a tough connection. So how did you make this work, Mr. Wizard? Well, I'm glad you asked. I have an air pump. Most of Mr. Wizard's... liquid nitrogen? Used liquid nitrogen and some kind of like air compressor, I remember. I was like, where did they get that? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, interesting stuff. So um, very, obviously very different things. I think everyone's familiar with the board game Clue. It was... That's been around since 1948, 49, depending on where you, you know, where what you history you're going by. Yeah, it's one of the quote-unquote classic games of American board game culture. Yeah. Uh, it's up to, you know, you have your Monopoly in your life and uh, your Parcheesi, Chess Checkers, Sorry, Trouble, all these games that everybody seemed to have in your neighborhood growing up. Risk, you had, yeah. a, you had a copy of Clue. Oh, yeah. I think everyone at least one. And there's multiple copies out there. But it was actually created first in the UK and created as Cluedo, which was a play on Ludo, a board game that was popular over there. Apparently during the air raids of World War II, a man named Anthony Pratt recalled the murder mystery games played by fellow musicians. Uh, He was a musician himself. Uh, and inspired by the popular murder mystery novelists of the time, like Agatha Christie kind of came up with this idea of a person, place, and thing, and finding out who murdered. Uh, and every, like you said, everyone is over the years, there's been Simpsons, Clue, Golden Girls, The Office, Star Wars, Harry Potter, all sorts of different Clue games that have been out. Yeah, I still have just the classic version i haven't really i wouldn't mind getting a themed version i just uh you know how we are we have so many games yeah i did have one uh someone i knew went to the uk uh they years ago they released a sherlock edition cluedo and i had them pick me up a copy of that, that. Makes sense. being a big sherlock fan pretty cool just a little something different um, but i think that's one that you know my kids still play that's still popular still sold um, and even newer games like the Deception Murder in Hong Kong play right. off of the idea yeah. of Clue. When they had that yeah. without Clue. Yeah, and it's a good uh, way to kind of flex your logistic muscles in your mind and maybe inspire some detectives out there. 
um, because you you do have to put two and two together, clue and clue. Yeah, that's a good point. There are certain games that do help with uh, logic skills, reasoning, that type of um, out-of-the-box thinking of putting that information together. So it's it's great that it's still, still out there. Uh, but a, I think a rare instance, there's not a lot of movies based on board games, at least not for now. There probably will be. Um, I know they did Battleship, but... Oh, that was based off the board game? That was based off the board game. Mm. You know, the really complex storyline of Battleship. Yeah. That's going on. They were able to enhance that. Wow. I, I haven't seen the movie. Have you? I've seen parts of it. It was on uh, cable. We caught part of it. Do they call out coordinates? Yeah. Yeah. And B3. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be great if that were the entire movie, just two people just two playing. Two people. Playing Battleship. Cost $110 million to produce. Michael Bay threw everything into it. Big explosions. Aerosmith song. Credits. It's got everything. Uh, but yeah, Clue is, I think, a game that lends itself to becoming a sure. movie. In 1985, uh, something I would consider a a cult following to, to that movie. Uh, I know, you know a lot of people have seen it, but... I know that the small group who have seen it most of the time really love that movie. It's uh, it's its own thing. Yeah, it's definitely uh, not much. I, I did recently see Knives Out, and I think that drew... Borrowed from that. So. Very much from that kind of idea. But in 1985, that cast of Christopher Lloyd, Martin Mull, Michael McKean, Eileen Brennan, Madeline Kahn, Leslie Ann Warren, Tim Curry... It was a zany film, when yeah. you use that word. Not right. much is zany anymore. Right. And I kind of pine for the days when things were, because uh, madcap is another word that comes to mind when watching that movie. It has a it has an energy as if the whole cast and crew were on copious amounts of strong coffee and maybe other things. Oh, definitely, especially for that for that time. There, and there's nothing else really that kind of like fits that description anymore. And just there's a lot of quick witted dialogue. It's a witty film. It's not scatological or sophomoric humor. It's some slapstick to it, but it feels like an older. Film. And it is set in you know the mid fifties, set against the Cold War and communism and J. Edgar Hoover. So a lot of references to those things. And at that time, so it does feel like a movie from that time. Like it could almost be black and white sure. comedy. Because you could have gone another way with it. You could have made it uh, very serious. You know, this is a murder after all, an, uh, an investigation. You could have made it very dour and dry and, and uh, kind of like uh, a, a lot of murder mysteries uh, have that kind of wink. A little bit of wink there, you know, Sherlock and... Uh, uh, Columbo, think of all these guys who are solving these murders, these classic detectives. There's always a, a bit of humor in there. I think you need that to lighten up the heaviness of what's actually going on here. But this movie took it to a whole new level. New heights. That's such classic, classic times. Madeline Kahn in that movie gets me every time that she's in top form. In that, whether it's harmonizing when they're singing for She's a Jolly Good Fellow, 
or her flames on the sides of my face, which is the only ad lib that was in the entire script. Yes, I did it. I killed Yvette. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it, flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths. She's, everyone is great. Michael McKean and Martin Mall and Tim Curry again. Great oh, Tim Curry. After filming with all the, the, the takes, how far do you think Tim Curry ran during filming? Oh my God. It had I to be miles how, and miles. How he did that. You're, when, I re, when I watch it now, just how active he is in that, that last segment. Mm-hmm. And, so, and talking so quickly. Right. I don't know how he wasn't out of breath for the next month and a half. Another derivative film and character, uh, Tim Roth in Four Rooms. I think takes directly from Tim Curry from Clue. Yeah, very much a similar kind of style to his mannerisms and and acting. That's a good point. Uh, I haven't seen that one in a while. But it was uh, also kind of a madcap idea with more dark tones to it. But dealing with some pretty serious, for the most part, subject. Sure. Just a couple things I, I saw about... Clue that I didn't know. Apparently, Carrie Fisher was originally contracted to play Miss Scarlet, but withdrew uh, because she was entering treatment for drug and alcohol addiction. Yeah, that was what, mid-80s, so yeah, yeah, right around that time when a lot of people were going through it, her especially. Yeah. It was like the height of her, uh, her I want to say breakdown, but for lack breakdown. of a better word. I think she would have described it as that. I know, you know, she openly talked about it in her book, so when she did live appearances, she was not shy about that period of her life and apparently the director's first choice for wadsworth was rowan atkinson Mm. but didn't think he was well known enough sure so it'd be interesting to see what that would have been like with him rather than tim curry yeah i don't think uh it would have been bad i think they bring a similar energy and being englishmen uh theater actors i think either of them would have been serviceable He's he's someone that could have pulled. When you hear Tom Selleck was originally supposed to play Indiana Jones, <laughs> and you hear that, and you go, I don't, I don't know about that. Right. But Rowan Atkinson, Wadsworth, yeah, I could probably see that, him being able to pull that off. But I guess to American audiences, he might not have been well-known, but what was Tim Curry well-known for at the time? He did Legend, I believe, the year prior. A Rocky Horror Picture Show. A Rocky Horror Picture Show. Which was... That wasn't a, a huge movie. I guess it was well-known to a degree, but I... It's between that and and stage, I think that was enough well, you know, enough known to, to get him the job. Sure. I know Rocky Horror Picture Show, obviously the biggest cult, film of all time we'll talk about that in another episode but enough i think especially in the uk where we talked about i think last week where sometimes things just take on a life of their own over there and have a completely different level of following yeah and i think that's what happened in that case it's interesting being a board game geek that i am i never noticed this um in the movie when everyone splits off into pairs Apparently, the partners correspond with the rolling order of the game. So, Miss Scarlet and Colonel Mustard, Mrs. White and Wadsworth, Mr. Green, Miss Peacock, Professor Plum. 
So arguably the drawing lot scene is symbolic of the die roll. Constant uh, referring yes. to ladies first is reflective of Miss Scarlet rolling first in the game. Yes. Which is interesting. Yeah, they have to keep... It's based off a game, and how far can you go with keeping with that theme of a movie based off a board game? Setting and characters, and maybe that's about it. Everything else was left to the imagination. But then you add in, okay, well, there is at least this. Right. So they had the character names, the the knife, the rope, the lead pipe, the wrench, and then the conservatory, the lounge. So the layout of the house, the murder weapons, the people... But that was one of those things that kind of thrown in, unless you really knew the game Clue, might not have picked up. And I never realized that before. I thought that was pretty cool. I always had trouble with the the candlestick as as a, a murder weapon. I could see everything else. Even the wrench, you know, you've held one of those wrenches. Yeah. They're hefty. And I suppose the same can be said for the candlestick, but I just don't think that would do you in, you know. might give you... a Splitting headache or a nasty gash. bump, but uh, you really have to be a psychopath to take somebody out with that. <laughs> I prefer a good old fashioned noose. That's going to do the job. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, maybe we have lesser candlesticks these days. That's true. Could have been a much heavier, blunt yeah, object. That... In those times, candlesticks were a little more robust. Yeah, the noose, the only plastic piece too. I always felt it. It was in a class of its own, being the... Well, uh, I remember uh, early editions of the game actually had... A, uh, they used twine, and they mm. tied it to look like a noose, so it looked more authentic, and then they replaced it with plastic over the years, too. So it was somebody's job to tie the to twine tie into it. Probably some, probably some child in yeah. Indonesia, every day of their life, was just tying... Their little fingers manipulating pieces of twine to make nooses for a game. What a wonderful story. That they would never be able to play. No. And then they died. That's a fun note. Another thing that I love about about Clue, something that I haven't seen in any other movie, there are three different endings to Clue. Um, When you watch it now on television or home video, uh, it shows all three. But in when it first came out in theaters... Depending on what theater you went to and what showing you saw, there was a different ending. So you could go see. I don't know if that was even advertised. So someone could go see it and tell them they saw it. And the next day, that person would go see it. And they would talk about it and say, yeah, I love that so-and-so did it. And they're like, that's not, what are you talking about? That's not what happened. That's not what I saw. Right. Um, That's something that I think could have been utilized more. And I'm surprised that it didn't take off more. Especially when you look at movies like, you know, Scream or some of the other slasher films that came out that were big hits. They could have gotten repeat business for movies, which isn't something you always get if you do that. That's a great point. But then again, we know that the movie industry, the bottom line is the bottom line. And to what degree Clue was successful at the box office, I don't think it was a flop, but I don't. Necessarily think it was a smash hit. It didn't. It it did all right, but I think it found a life on video and cable, um, and another generation kind of found it and went in there. And it would take a lot more effort to film three endings, sure, and then be able to get that to theaters. You know, you have this one or this one, or switch out it at this time. So yeah, I mean, you know, it's more work 
And we all hate that. We are Americans. We are. And uh, once again, money money talks. And if, if even if it's a great idea or something more to be explored, if it doesn't bring home the bacon, then gone with it. Gone with the bacon. I love that one, too. Uh, but we uh, we talked a little bit about that cast. Again, Christopher Lloyd, Martin Mull, Tim Curry, Madeline Kahn. Um, someone we're not mentioning, though, was uh, the character of Mr. Body. Because he can't have Clue without a body. Mr. Body. And uh, that actor, under the stage name of Lee Ving, actually born Lee James Jude Capillero, April 10th, 1950. Uh, he started playing guitar at the age of 11. He studied with jazz guitarists like Jim Hall and John Abercrombie. He was in a Philadelphia band called the Sweet Steven Chain, or SSC, opened for The Who and Cream, before he eventually created the punk band The Fear. Uh-huh. Um, or Fear. And uh, he's had some other acting roles here and there. He was in Flashdance. He was in Streets of Fire opposite uh, Willem Dafoe. But uh, I think his contribution to Fear, the punk band Fear, uh, is probably what he's most well known for. Yeah. So um, that's one of those those bands interesting. Um, there's a great documentary out there, The Decline of Western Civilization, that was done by Penelope, Penelope Spheris. Um, and she kind of was doing, wanted to do a doc about the Los Angeles punk scene in the 70s. And came across Lee Ving and fellow member of Fear uh, Split Sticks with Tim Leach. Uh, they were hanging, apparently hanging handbills um, in Los Angeles for an upcoming show. She recognized them, asked if they wanted to be in this documentary. If you've ever get a chance to see it, it's an interesting look at that time because the punk scene, an L.A. punk scene, it was like this little short window mm-hmm. that happened of this little pocket universe almost uh, of people in this group and then it just kind of once punk started becoming mainstream it was no longer punk right and anti-establishment and anti-popular and it just kind of then went away pop punk and then became pop punk and it became pop punk uh actually i didn't know this either at one point uh flea played as bassist in he, was, he was in the band briefly yeah. what doesn't he do He's in Back to the Future 2. Uh-huh. He's in Fear. So, you know, Fear as as a band, they kind of had a, a shtick. There were a lot of, you know, punk bands at the time. When you look at the Sex Pistols, punk bands were known to kind of taunt their audience. They were like insult comics right. in a way. And um, like you said, they had, uh, you had to have a cool punk name. Uh, you couldn't go just go by your own name. You had to have like some nickname, Sid Vicious, or right. Yeah, they had to. You had to kind of have this like punk name. So you know, then they would taunt their audience. They would use you know racist, homophobic slurs, spit on them, throw their drinks on them. But that was part of the experience. Part yeah, of a great show. night out. Right. Like I have until I've been spit on by my you know my favorite performer. Uh, but the. Uh, the, the decline of Western civilization was uh, brought to 
And the band Fear was brought to the attention of uh, John Belushi, who knew Penelope Spheris. She had uh, been part of that whole world. Um, and he had, he had the, when he was hosting Saturday Night Live, he came back uh, in 1981 for a Halloween episode. He lobbied to get, that was his kind of thing. Punk uh-huh. was very Belushi. Um, just that anti-establishment, that kind of anti-social behavior. Do your own thing. Nobody knows what's going to happen. The kind of yeah. teetering on the razor's edge of chaos and could possibly go over the edge. Sure. Yeah, that was his. That was his whole style, and he so he wanted them to be a the musical guest on Saturday Night Live, and it all worked out. Saturday Night Live, you know, it started. Before we were born, actually coming here up up here on the anniversary, just a couple of days, October eleventh. Oh, um, started as in nineteen seventy five. Started as NBC Saturday Night. Uh, first episode was George Carlin as the host. Yes, uh, and I know you know when we were younger, Nick at Night would show old Saturday Night Lives, and even that first episode was a very different feel. It like it hadn't found its rhythm yet. Yeah, and it felt. A little bit different. His monologue was a little more like a beat poet. Yeah. Like, you know, you could see the audience around him and on a stool, kind of doing his George Carlin. There's red wine and white wine. There's no green wine. It's green grapes. Weird. That kind of thing. Uh-huh. Um, but, and then, you know, it just wasn't, you know, first, I think, few weeks, there was some kind of concern uh, is this thing going to last? What is it? Who is this for? Nobody knew. It was an experiment. Right. And that's what, that was cool. But I think the, I think that Lorne Michaels has proved that he knows talent. Sure. He knows funny. He knows how to sell it. And he is, you know, multiple members of the National Lampoon radio show uh, that ended up becoming what they call the Not Ready for Time, Primetime Players. John Belushi, Lorraine Newman, Gene Curtin, Gilda Radner, Dan Aykroyd, Garrett Morris, Chevy Chase, and that ended up being then it ended up being especially Chevy Chase. It just blew up from there. Yeah, for better or for worse. Yeah, it's kind of like over the years it kind of goes in waves of, and they'll get a new cast and it'll be weak at first, and then they'll kind of create repeatable characters that end up being these great sketches and then it'll drop off again and it's been interesting to see over the years how they changed it yeah they've been on the brink of cancel being canceled for pretty much their entire existence and usually that their answer to that is to retool the cast and, and tweak it a bit and uh and then yeah then it does fine and then two seasons later it's like hey we're this isn't working. We're going to cancel you. <gasps> and then, then it works again. Because right. I know from reading, there's a, a book um, that talks about, I believe it's called Wild and Crazy Guys, about comedy from the 70s through 80s and all the National Lampoon and SCTV people and as Saturday Night Live and Caddyshack, Ghostbusters, and all those, uh, those films that were so popular. And... And they talk a lot about, especially going into the 80s, they were they were almost done. 
Yeah, well, that is one of those shows where everybody remembers the 70s cast and everyone remembers the 90s cast, but outside of Eddie Murphy... He was the uh, only reason that show stayed. Who, who could remember anybody in the 80s? Terry Sweeney. There was, yeah, there was... It, yeah, and there was one year, though, that it was Robert Downey Jr., mm-hmm. Anthony Michael Hall, uh, Martin Short, Christopher Guest. They had this, like, really great cast, crazy, talented cast. Yeah. But they just didn't have, like, there was some good stuff that came out of that. The men's synchronized swimming Christopher <laughs> Guest sketch is very Christopher Guest tight. Like, but there's not, and... Martin Short reprised his SCTV character of Ed Grimley. Right. But outside of that, yeah, there was, uh, it didn't have it and they were close. What was your, your first memory of Saturday Night Live? Was that something your parents let you watch? No. Um, just growing up because it was on so late, uh, it was not something that I was allowed to watch. But however, they would, like anything, if something is funny or quotable, they would talk about it and then quote about or do the quotes from my uncle. He always did the uh, the Belushi sketch, the cheeseburger, cheeseburger, cheeseburger. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what that meant, but he'd do it all the time. Right. And, uh, so he was always quoting it and they were watching. So I, I kind of had it handed down secondhand to me secondhand comedy secondhand comedy making kill great troop um and it wasn't until i started staying up a little bit later in middle and high school on the weekends that i was introduced to it through those 90s casts that uh, we all know and love um that i really oh okay that's this is what this is right but by that time all the original 70s cast had gone on to become famous and or forgotten right now that sounds pretty familiar to me too i think it was the same thing um my parents my aunts and uncles would talk about certain sketches or i remember just catching repeats here and there certain sketches uh and like i i said uh nick at night for a while would show um, the old episodes, kind of condensed versions of the old episodes, or there'd be like the best of John Belushi. And, yeah. And then as I got probably into high school, it was around that, you know, mid-90s, and that's when I was staying up late enough to to watch that cast, which was, it will kind of touch on a little bit here. So that was, that's who I grew up with, was those guys. Yeah, those 90s casts that pretty much all those guys became famous. I mean, there's not many that did. And, of course, there are some who, who didn't quite make it. But, uh, you know, when we grew up, it was Phil Hartman and Adam Sandler, Dennis Miller. Uh, Chris David Farley, Spade, John Chris, Lovitz. John Lovitz, yeah, you know, all those guys. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, the, the late, great Norm MacDonald. Yeah, um, kind of a little bit. Later on that, he kind of bridged the gap between that and then when Will Ferrell came in and that that crew. But uh-huh. when we were watching, when, you know, Wayne's World was the big... Mike Myers, yeah, yeah, Dana Carvey, how could we forget those guys? Sure. And that, yeah, and I then then it became, I wanted to watch it every week. Um, and I looked forward to 
Saturday Night Live. If I was home or if my sister or I taped it, we would look forward to watching it the next day. Uh, you know, I still will catch it now and then, depending on who the host is. There's some still some good, uh, some good guests or some sketches that come up. Um, I just saw that Beck Bennett yes. is leaving the show. Oh. Uh, he's hilarious. Yeah, the modern cast, um, I think, because we didn't mention any of the the females from the 90s cast, uh, but it seems now the, the, the ladies are kind of the more the standouts. Yeah, I uh, think so, and I think that was mainly due to Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. Yeah. When, they, when Tina Fey took over as head writer, she showed... Again, I you know, I talked a little bit Lauren Michaels knows funny. I think he might have been somewhat apprehensive to at first about bringing more females in other than having the token female. I don't yeah. know. That's just what it seems like to me. Right. But Tina Fey proved that you can have this voice and it's a diff a little bit different than some of the what you might yeah. get from a male head writer, but and you need that, yeah. Because oh, yeah. I can't really name aside from Pete Davidson and Colin Jost, I can't name any of the the male cast members anymore. No, you know when you said Beck, it's like I know, yeah, he's one of them. That's mm -hmm. right, and he's been on the show for eight yeah. years or so. You look at what's everything that's been done with Kate McKinnon, mm -hmm. and she's she's great. She's phenomenal. I think she does good impressions. Um, she's can carry an entire sketch by herself. She can, you know, I've seen her in other stuff. She's absolutely hilarious. Yeah. And, but I do think it was kind of Tina Fey and Amy Poehler who kind of paved the way for that. And why I love the show 30 Rock, because you kind of get to see a little bit, it's different. It's a parody of what life was like, but I, you kind of get the feeling that it wasn't that much different for Tina Fey to write than Liz Lemon and right. dealing with crazy actors like Tracy Morgan. Yeah. And how do you write for Tracy Morgan? Like what you, you don't even know what to expect when he shows up. He could just start yelling about alien prostitutes <laughs> or lift up his shirt and slap his stomach for no reason whatsoever or just go off on a tangent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Amy Poehler came to SNL after being, in Upright Citizens Brigade. Yeah. And uh, that's, you know, there's SNL, which is primetime network TV, but then some of these other comedy troops that uh, people are involved in, a little more uh, left field, a little more experimental. That's kind of more my tastes, yeah. the, the weirder shit. Yeah, you had that in the state. Yeah. Um, and then movies like Wet Hot American Summer. Mm -hmm. uh, those writers and those performers... Her and Michael Ian Black, very different type of comedy, but I think that was needed in SNL. They needed to, we can continue on doing the same thing, or we can kind of make it a little bit crazier or weirder and more out there. Not that there weren't sketches that were strange throughout, sure. but... Well, even going back to the original cast, I mean, some of those guys, like uh, Aykroyd was... Uh, uh, you know, Second City was a stepping stone for a lot of them. Myers and SCTV uh, and Groundlings. A lot of those people came up through through there. So SNL, I think, is like the the spot you want to arrive at. We consider like the top spot 
once you come up through those those other uh, improv comedy troops. Yeah. And I think it'd be remiss if we didn't talk about that original cast, but also the original writers. And you talk, you know, so much of that came out of National Lampoon, and you have mm-hmm. Michael O'Donoghue. Yeah. You talk about out there, yeah. erratic. He was at top of the list of of that. That's who he was. It wasn't a bit he was doing. <laughs> it was, this is yeah, my life. Right. And that's, I, there is, there is comedy in that, which we'll kind of talk about when we can on Naked Lunch. Yeah. The humor in the awful. But yeah, I think SNL is a big part of it. If anyone's into comedy at all, SNL at some point in your life is a big part of it. But we were talking about the fear they, or fear, I keep calling it the, the fear. It's not, it's fear. Uh, they performed on Saturday Night Live. There's a few times in SNL history uh, where there is... Uh, got out of hand. Kind of got, yeah. Things got out of hand. Or um, we just had the recent uh, anniversary of when Sinead O'Connor, she ripped up a picture of the Pope. That's out of hand. She, uh, that people didn't like that very I mean, much. I don't care. I'm not a Catholic. and uh, But I could see... Uh, an Irish Catholic uh, tearing up the picture of John Paul II. Um, I think the whole of Ireland. Yes, uh, she was yeah public enemy number one. Collectively turned red. Yes, if you looked at a map at that time, mm-hmm. it would have just gone from green to red right. for the anger that they felt. For a lot of Americans. Uh, you know, there's there's a good amount of Catholics here, there's but pockets. But for most Americans, people are just like, oh, okay, this is Irish gal, and she's making some sort of statement. I don't know what it means because I don't really follow this. At least right. that's how I felt. But then, uh, to those who are her being an Irish uh, citizen, and then, like I said, the the nation of of Ireland being mostly Catholic, she was in some hot water there. Oh yeah. And, you know, what she was doing was protesting child abuse in the Catholic Church. So she was ahead of her time, certainly. Oh, yeah. It, but at know, the time, that was it wasn't seen that way. Yeah. And, you know, most people didn't know about it. It was a well-known secret in that community. Obviously, it's been known for decades because they would just move priests or bishops from one location to another if something happened. But uh, so without that being big public knowledge at the time and her doing that Catholics were upset the representation of God on earth was being defaced to our knowledge uh, John Paul II was never implicated in in, he was implicated in being complicit in the cover up but uh, as far as what he did personally I don't think there was any evidence that uh, he was involved in that no he was just the representation that she right that was one that I remember. I remember um, watching live when Martin Lawrence hosted, and they had to do a thirty-second delay for his monologue because because he can't not cuss. Yeah, and cannot cuss and talk about. And actually, I remember watching it live, and him talking about women needing to clean themselves because, like, washing their ass before you have sex with them. And now, if you ever catch that episode, there's just like a black screen 
And a voiceover really? that says he goes on from here to say that cleanliness <laughs> of women. Yeah, it's a it's kind of crazy because I remember seeing that, but I've only seen it once. Well, that is the uh, the part of the fun of, of SNL is it's live television, and you don't know what's going to happen. So there there is that uh, kind of trepidation of well this might go off the rails yeah and uh there's and it does there's entertainment and fun in that uh did you ever see this frank zappa episode and that's another one he just did not want to be there no i think he would have been okay with being the musical act somewhat but as far as being in the sketches well he felt that the sketches were insulting him and to some degree i can agree with him um, because in the late 70s, drug culture was at a high. Drug humor. He hated drug and humor. He was not a, a, yeah, he was not a drug user uh, or did not promote the use of drugs, and he just felt that that was kind of uh, juvenile. And it was, but, yeah. you know, what are you going to do when you have, if you don't know who he is and you only hear his music, you, you think that would be his bag. Right. I mean, it's like Monty Python. You would think they would have been high all the time, and they were like, "We had tea." Mm-hmm. Some of us smoked a pipe. Here, I mean, aside from Chapman, right? Who wasn't yeah. was drunk all the time, drunk but uh, he was a he was a gin drinker. He wasn't using drugs. Right? Alcohol is a drug. Beside yeah. the point. So it is there. Just seeing it go off the rails is is sometimes some of the best thing. Now, when Fear was on the show, um, they the flew. Fear. No, it's just fear. <laughs> I got it right that time. Uh, they included a group of slam dancers, um, among them John Belushi, Ian McKay of Minor Threat, mm-hmm. and later Fugazi, Tesco V of The Meat Men, Harvey Flanagan and John Joseph of The Crow Mags, and John Brandon of Negative Approach. Yeah, all. kind of a who's who of... Uh... The punk world at the time, the underground right. punk world at the time. Right. So, and then watching it, if you don't know who those people are, because they wouldn't have been on television, you would have had to see them live and know who right. they are. Just these, this group of random, seemingly random people. But you look back on it, and you're like, this just like the the UN, the Avengers <laughs> of of punk. Yeah. Or they, they, I wouldn't say that they had an agenda, but given that they were given. Uh, this opportunity of live TV and knowing their stance on things like that, uh, they could have seen this coming. Right. And, but, you know, they, they did a little bit. The director originally wanted to prevent it. He knew kind of like the dangerous is not our scene, but Belushi offered to be in the episode if they were allowed to stay and they knew they would get ratings if Belushi was on. And the result, was the shortening of the fears appearance on TV. Uh, leaving started this band's second song by stating, it's great to be here in New Jersey, <laughs> drawing a lot of, obviously, booze from the New York-based audience. And they played I Don't Care About You, Beef Bologna, New York's Right If, you're right, uh, if You Like Saxophones, and started to play Let's Have a War uh, when the telecast faded into commercials. Apparently, the slam dancers left ripe pumpkin remains on the set. Cameras, a piano, and other property were damaged in the situation, and there was close to a riot. Yeah, a real 
punk show. Well, real punk rock show. Right. This song is about how much we love you. This is a punk. We're just kidding. We want to make friends. Everybody got a match? This song is. Which is what not, not what Saturday Night no. so one of the more memorable things to happen on live television that uh, Fear and Lee Ving were a part of. An interesting part is back then uh, you got a lot of oh, you know, people talked about that, but it was in a, a negative way, and it did impact them to some degree negatively. But now I think if something like that were to happen. The old saying, there's no such thing as bad press, oh, sure. would hold true. I just saw that uh, R. Kelly's sales have gone up 500% uh, since he's now a convicted uh, convicted criminal of... Absolutely. And so people now think, well, I, I sure. want to hear this. Because the media is going to talk about it. More people are going to discover it. People are going to be like, oh, yeah, I remember that and play it. Uh-huh. Sure thing. Look at Ashley Simpson. Again, SNL. Right, the the whole uh, lip syncing, lip syncing yeah. scandal, and that that didn't deter anything. She just got more press. Yeah. So, kids, if you're out there and you're learning anything, um, even if it seems bad at the time, it's probably going to be good for your career. So, uh, go with it. Do it. Just do it. That's why Nike says that. Mm-hmm. Pay us now. But yeah, we were kind of talking about earlier. Just our, you know, our era of the 90s, um, Dan Carvey, John Lovitz, Mike Myers, Kevin Nealon, Adam Sandler, Chris Farley, uh, they were it. Um, and there was one guy that you mentioned that the rest of the cast called the glue. Mm-hmm. He was the guy at the show that when there was issues or problems between cast members or writers, he was the one who was the professional, held it together. One of the funniest people who's ever been on this planet, Phil Hartman. Yes. He's a Canadian, but I won't hold <gasps> that against him. Now, I love Canadians. I love, if you're listening in Canada, I love all Canadians. We haven't met one we didn't like yet. I haven't, no. Well, there's one. I went to Windsor one time, the casino, and there was a blackjack dealer who was kind of a dick. Oh. But I don't think he was from Canada. Yeah, I think he was probably from Detroit. Yeah, fuck him. But all other Canadians we love. And there's something about, again, we talked about Norm MacDonald. There's something about Canadians that breed funny people. And mm-hmm. I don't, what is it? Because I don't think there's a lot of plight. We <laughs> talked last week a little bit about having the, Jewish humor. Right, the hard uh, times. And that comes from the oppression, the hard times, and needing that to as a coping mechanism. But, well, I mean, the cold. I was going to say, we've, you've experienced the weather, the. Winter's here, and they can be rough. Imagine going 200 miles north and uh, the severity of those. So, yeah, maybe. Just the weather. Weather breeds good comedians, but he was fantastic. Um, Before SNL, uh, he was part of that Los Angeles improv team. Uh, He was part of the Groundlings. That's where he met Paul Rubens. Mm -hmm. Uh, Co-wrote with him on the Pee Wee Herman show, both the live a special on HBO and Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Uh, also played Captain Carl. 
and the HBO original HBO and cartoon. So I know that he and Paul Rubens had at one point had a falling out, kind of a disagreement. He has a cameo in Pee-wee's Big Adventure, though, at the end. Uh, but he was a big part of that character of Pee-wee. Yes. As much as Paul Rubens brought that character to life. Who Miss Yvonne went on uh, to play uh, Charlie's, Charlie's mom, mom in It's Always Sunny. Which is weird because I grew up with her as Miss Yvonne. Just so mm-hmm. to see her as that character <laughs> is so bizarre to me. And she's great too. She was also part of that Groundlings yeah. along with um, uh, Elvira. Yep. She was in that crew too and met all of them. You know, and I, I think most people remember Phil Hartman from not only Saturday Night Live, uh, Simpsons. You got two of the best characters that were ever on The Simpsons, Lionel Hutz and Troy McClure, star of such films as Smoke Yourself Thin or Get Confident <laughs> Stupid. Uh, I know he did the, uh, what was the contabulous fabtraction of Professor Horatio Huffnagel. Uh-huh. He did instead of doing the, being the sidekick in the McMain sequel. And also the uh, the lead as the human in the Planet of the Apes musical. Yeah. <laughs> of course, I had the great Dr. Zayas. <laughs> Help, the human's about to escape. Get your paws off me, you dirty ape. <gasps> he can talk. 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 I can sing. Oh, help me, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas, oh, Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas, what's wrong with me? I think you're crazy. Want a second opinion? You're all so lazy. There is a handful of times in my life where I literally fell off the couch laughing. Yeah. That was one of them. them. That and... Chappelle showed his Wayne Brady up to choke a pitch. <laughs> I literally fell from a seated position on a couch, and I was laughing so hard from that. But um, Simpsons did that to me more than once, but that was one of them. And my God, was he funny. And news radio, I loved news mm-hmm. radio. Um, Bill McNeil, what a great character. I think that's an underrated show. You know, you talk about 90s sitcoms. Um, you know, Friends and Seinfeld and yeah, Will and yeah. Grace, but well, news radio. News radio was. I mean, uh, so I mean, look at Joe Rogan now. Everyone, look at Joe Rogan now. Yeah, look at him. You you go back to that show, and uh, you never think that this this minor character on the sitcom would become the number one now. podcaster. Number one podcaster. Yeah. Once we get him to talk about us, then whew. that'll be it. Yep. Or Andy Dick. Right. I mean, Andy Dick was a household name. We'll um, get him to talk about us. That'll probably he would be talk, a lot We could probably get him on the show here. That'd probably be a lot easier. If you get a chance, if you've never seen News Radio, if you get a chance, check it out. Download it. I know it's on um, a couple of the, the free streaming services like IMDb or Tubi or something. Gooby or Booby. Whatever <laughs> the like the free ones are. My God. Wait, Dave Foley. Foley, yeah. Um, Stephen Root. Jimmy James was such a good fucking character, but it, Phil Hartman made that show. And he, unfortunately, I remember I was home from school. Actually, this would have been after high school, 1998. So I was, it was May 28th. I remember being at home watching TV and hearing that Phil Hartman 
was dead and had been shot. And I couldn't, it was the first time I remember being like affected by a death of a celebrity. And it hit, like, I'm still sad about it. It just seems so crazy to this day that the way it went down. Right. But this is why it's important to be, talk about mental illness and uh, stay ahead of it because maybe, who knows? I mean, this is all speculation, but uh, if it was a little more acceptable, um, maybe his wife would have got the help she needed before she took his and her lives. And, uh, Especially when, you know, drugs and alcohol are involved right. on top of mental illness. Right. Uh, there definitely, I think, was more of a stigma at the time. And it's unfortunate. You know, you can't really blame someone who's not. Oh, I can't. I mean. Well, she did it. You can blame it. it yeah. But if they're not aware of their actions on a sober level. Sure. On knowing what's going on and thinking in their right mind. That's the um, dangerous tragic, thing. You know, and I think people were upset, and rightly so, but, uh, you know, he was taken away terribly. It was really shocking, and still is, uh, because he was such a big part of uh, comedy throughout that, that time in the 90s. Yeah, and also a great artist. He was, uh, he got his start making album covers. Yeah, uh, yeah, he went to school for, before he was in, uh, before he was in the Groundlings, he went to school for graphic arts. He ended up doing his own business, creating, I think, like 40 or more album covers for uh, Poco America. He des- designed the logo for Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Right. And he also designed uh, the album cover for Aja, yeah. Steely Dan. Yeah, he's one of those guys that uh, makes me feel bad about myself. Or I've done nothing. Right. Uh, well, we're doing this. Even comparable. We're sure. doing this. This yeah. might one day people might yeah. look back. I guess it's something. Yeah, have, it's not nothing. But uh, we have tens of listeners right now. To the degree that you can be this successful for being this funny, but also be this great artist who right. is of note here too. It's. Uh, it's like all these talented people just hogging up all the cool stuff for the rest of us. There's only so much cool. Right. And they're taking it they're all from us. Getting it all. Um, I'm bitter. Yeah, it is a little, it's a little, yeah, upsetting. There's some people who just have all of that. But um, then at the same time, tragic ending, I guess maybe that's not that great. Right. So uh, It's a trade-off. It's a trade-off. But yeah, uh, and I think it's fitting, too, with... With Phil Hartman, with uh, his sense of humor, because he had kind of a dark, kind of twisted, it's almost subversive, but not really sense of humor. Yeah, so, if you see, can catch any of those performances of uh, Pee Wee, it's on full display there. Oh, yeah. Or uh, seen him on talk shows. I know he was on Letterman one time, and he came out with a little, like a old... 50 style mustache i'm doing the hand lotion like everyone can see me and claimed he was the uh national tobacco growers association <laughs> spokesperson he was smoking <laughs> i just said eh, it's the cool refreshing taste yeah plus that voice he had yeah he, could just he was that swarm do anything right like that. Well, how are you? never better dave how are you <laughs> You, know, you look a little different. You have something, you have like a like a little magic marker or something there on your upper lip. It's a drawn-on mustache, Dave. <laughs> Not everybody can pull that off, but on you it looks great, Phil. 
It's kind of a retro look. You want a light for your cigarette? I know I'm a non-smoker, Dave. <laughs> I'm proud to announce uh, that I'm the new spokesperson for the American Tobacco Growers Association. I didn't realize that. Congratulations. And, uh, yes, and I'm the first non-smoker to be granted this opportunity. Uh -huh. I'm very excited about it. Uh, it. I think it's just fitting that he designed a uh, an album cover for Steely Dan, which th they really like li lyrically. You know, they had cryptic and strange lyrics they were you know kind of you know poetic but kind of poking fun at society uh -huh. and things like that uh, just kind of fit right into that wheel wheelhouse for him we miss you phil yeah i know that that's that was a big loss so i think you know i don't know it's is is steely dan do you think is, is a band that most people know well oh i would hope so I would hope so, but do you think that most people... <laughs> well, I have kind of a skewed uh, perception, right. possibly, because I grew up with my family, right. who, uh, like we talked about uh, in the Meatloaf episode, was uh, very up on classic rock, uh, obsessively so. And so I knew about them, and still do, continue to know about them. Right. Um I would think so. I think they were one of the first bands that crossed that bridge into um, modern recording techniques that went from kind of the 60s. You can you can hear in the sound the fidelity of 60s music. Um, not to say that there weren't great recordings with Phil Spector and Motown and Barry Gordy, but uh, kind of the close miking techniques that became industry standard, I think, were ushered in. Um, right around the time of Steely Dan's rise to prominence. And that, and that not only that studio production, but the, the blend of sounds, too, uh, between jazz and R&B, blues, Latin music, mm -hmm. very different. Um, that and the studio production being different kind of made them their own sound that's, I don't, I, you know, not really replicated. Uh, you know, I think they had some Pretty big hits, reeling in the years, sturdy work. Ricky, don't lose that number. Um, I think it's one of those bands that, for the most part, if people hear those songs, they won't realize that's who Steely Dan is. Yeah, exactly. Or they might only note those songs and haven't gone through like the discography and like, holy shit, these right. two guys, Walter Becker and Donald Fagan, um, so interesting. Yeah, it was kind of like the rise of art rock and. <laughs> The 70s was a perfect time for that. It's interesting because we're talking about punk because a lot of punk uh, resulted from bands like Steely Dan, who they thought were just, this is just... It's too arts, this is absurd. artsy. Yeah. This is way too... Well, what yeah, are we doing just, here? And it should be three chords. Strip it down. Right. Uh, so to have fear and Steely Dan in the same episode is pretty uh, apropos. He can, he can like both. Mm -hmm. It's all right. It's and just, I do. All right. So... We're back. We had a little issue going on. We'll edit something, maybe. I don't care. Haunted. Things are happening. Life happens. Life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. Yep. Uh, apparently, also another connection to Saturday Night Live, Chevy Chase almost was the drummer for Steely Dan. Now, that's crazy. Isn't it? you got to be a hell of a drummer. That uh, Is he that good? I don't know. 
He's a good musician all around. I know he plays a few different instruments. Um, he was hanging with Paul Simon there for a while. Right. And you got to be that, pretty good. That whole video, he was playing most of the instruments. And that clearly wasn't fake. So there's a bonus connection for you. But yeah, I definitely think... And I, I think it's interesting that um, they're meeting the the Walter and Donald. I, I think their their formation was something out of a movie. Like as... You know, Donald Fagan was walking by a cafe and heard Becker playing, practicing guitar and and yeah. asked him to be in a band. Just something that you would see in a biopic or like a... Sounds like it sounds too cool to be true. Right. That's one of those stories that you like, because that's just, it's kind of reminiscent of when you hear John Lennon talk about the Beatles and he's just like, we're just a band. Yeah. You know, I just had a, I wanted a band and Paul joined and then... George joined and Ringo joined. Yeah, we're talking about punk, and a lot of those bands are just like, yeah, I know some guys. It's like, can they Throw play? Like, no, but that doesn't matter. That's beside the point. Uh, you just got some guys who will do it. But yeah, with Steely Dan, like I said, is a bit more of a, I wouldn't say a, a mythos around them, but yeah, it makes sense for them in terms of how it all came together. Yeah, I really like that a lot. Uh, definitely a. Uh, and then, you know, something that I, I think I discovered kind of later in life, outside of their, their bigger hits. Another uh, thing that people who are a fan, if you're a fan of classic rock, check out more of their music outside of their their hits. Their hits. Steely Dan is an interesting name. Yeah. And when you kind of take a look at it, you realize, oh, it's taken from a revolutionary and quote steam powered dildo oh yeah mentioned in the novel naked lunch she took out her steely dan steely dan three yeah and the other two were destroyed in various what do you even say about the 19 1959 1959 naked lunch came out and how did everyone not just... This is before acid. This is before people knew what crazy shit was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. It's... You can't really even describe it. It's non-linear series of loosely connected stories, vignettes. Loosely being the key word here. Right. And drawn from... This is a novel by William S. Burroughs. Uh, not many people like William S. Burroughs, <laughs> probably for the best. <laughs> if everyone was like William S. Burroughs, the world would be like Naked Lunch. Yeah, it would be too much. And we don't want that. There can um, only be one him. But kind of just drawn from his own real life experiences um, and his own addiction to drugs, heroin, morphine, um yeah, he liked uh, a lot of things. Um, Opioids and oxycodones and wrote you, under the influence of these. You name it. And he was on it. Yeah, it's kind of a, he aligned himself with the Beats, although he was like the Beat grandfather because uh, most of those guys, Kerouac and Ginsburg and uh, Cassidy, when they uh, came up, they were younger, you know, they were college students and Burroughs was very much the elder statesman but yet kind of embraced that and and uh, typified that writing style the stream of consciousness uh, sort of 
post-Hemingway writing style that uh, they were known for. Um, but having read all those guys, uh, Burrow beats them all in terms yes. of uh, out there-ness. It's, it's even beyond out there. It, it, there's no preparation for it. The fact that he just calls into a what sounds like just a story, a terrible story, maddening story of being under the influence and witnessing atrocities, but then calling in the mystical mm-hmm. and demon-like creatures as yeah. though they were... Yeah, and then this penis-shaped monster showed up as though, yeah, that happens normally. There's no preparation for that novel. No, it is a, a very hallucinatory, uh, demented mind bordering on horror. I don't think you can you can say it is, but uh, it definitely has elements of it. Uh, you kind of feel the paranoia. Oh yes, uh, come through, and I think this is typified in the the. The drug user, the addict, um, because a lot of his motifs dealt with, you always have to be on the lookout for law enforcement, other people trying to rip you off, plus the fact that he was also uh, homosexual or had homosexual tendencies um, in that time when that was definitely very much a taboo, uh, I think helped to shape his his view and his voice and... Uh, it's it's not your typical uh, fare. No. And the fact that the language he used to describe homosexuality and what his perception of what others' perceptions of homosexuality was is shocking. Yes. Uh, if you don't understand the... If you're not looking at the context of how he was writing it, it would seem as though he was very homophobic, but I it it's more that he felt that others looked at them as animals, as animalistic. I think he thought all humans were base. Sure. When gotten down to the the elements, we were base, eat, fuck, shit, and, and get dopamine, and that's all that we're here for. But. Uh, yeah, it's interesting the way he portrayed homosexuality and talked about it a lot. But he was he was writing it in the sense that I feel other people's I feel other people see us this way. Right. Yeah, he was what would have at the time been called certainly a deviant, um, based on the lifestyle that he chose, and uh, a lot of people would just dismiss that as deviant behavior but as a very creative person and as an author he gives you this window and this insight into where he's coming from and you can say oh there is an artist underneath all of this madness Um, there is something here something of worth or something of value that we can extract from this Um, and I think that was the the defining aspect of the beat generation because they reveled in debauchery and deviancy yet out of it came uh what they're named after the beatitudes of this being closer to god 
sort of uh, mentality. And it's very interesting. Yeah. And there's not, that's kind of carried over. Um, Again, we came up through the 90s and there was a bit of a resurgence at that time. Yes, very much Um, so. But I don't think it hit that it was more, I don't know, I felt like beat light. Beat light, yeah. Almost. Sure. Uh-huh. We don't want to go that far into right. it. We don't want to murder our wives. Right. <laughs> uh, but we'll read your We're book. We're going to draw the line, but we are going to... Yeah, you and Hunter S. Thompson, we're going to get you. We're going to we really get you, but we're not going to do what you do. Right. That's too much. We're not crazy. And I wonder if, too, because just because... Uh, Society was the way it was, so full of repression and violence towards anything that ran counter culture that maybe that's why these people went to such extremes as they did. And by the time we came around, it was kind of been there, done that. So we had a, uh, a way to orient or a path that had already been been trod by those people that came before. Yeah, because at this time, you know, in that, that late 50s, uh, you know, there had been World War II, there had been the Depression, there had been the Korean War, and they, you know, those generations, a lot of those generations fought through something, had hardships. And you look at, you know, going back again to Clue, connecting it full circle back to Clue, the Cold War and communism, we didn't have something to rally and fight against. We weren't really you know we were one of the first generations to have it pretty easy right as a whole yeah. uh, not have a big war yeah the that fall we were of part soviet of. russia i mean even we saw the end of the cold war potentially we saw the wall come down so we you know in while we got the just the gist of these these writers and these authors these novels kind of understood but we didn't have that like well where do we take it from here what are you rebel against? Right. It's kind of turned into more self-indulgence. And uh, you have everything. And so where do you go from there? And that kind of just, yeah, that destroys itself. But, you know, if you're, you know, it, it also, like you said, it kind of helped clear the mind. If you went through that for a period of time and you experience that, I'm going to take it all in and indulge. And you can kind of like look back at it later and go, I did that. And I realized there's more. There's other stuff that you can do. There's more to being human than these things. Yeah. It's, uh, we owe a debt of gratitude for, because their lives weren't easy. You look at a lot of lives of people we admire, artists, musicians, actors, writers, uh, all these people, uh, performers. Like we talked about with uh, Phil Hartman and all the people we talk about, the, there is uh, this thread throughout of being up against something, whether it is an external thing in society or whether it's your own psyche uh, and the demons within you that you, you have to, to fight. Um, there's always the struggle that produces that great art. And that's the, the the wonderful thing about being human. It's a beauty. There, you can find beauty in darkness, and despair, and the ugly. Uh, there is because it reminds you that 
we're still, you know, we're animals, but there's something more. We recognize what there is and what there isn't. And yes. I love that. And that, you know, you can, you can come away from reading Naked Lunch and the movie is a completely different story. Yeah. Then you add David Cronenberg yeah. into it and right. you get that ugly and you get that, uh, uh, that lurking horror, slimy, uh-huh. phallic, pulsating, <laughs> everything is made of like this sort of gritty latex. That's just, I don't know where he gets his. They, but there's not many directors that can translate something like Naked Lunch in a film. Well, they said it couldn't be done. It was on. Filmable. Right. To a degree, they were right. They were right, because it's not the same. It's it's takes aspects of the book and other elements of William S. Burroughs' life and kind of puts it together into a film. Yeah. Have you ever been uh, fearful that your keyboard was going to possess you and eat you or inseminate you? And, uh, well, if you haven't, uh, watch Naked Lunch and you will. you might have expected i have instructions for you from control it's about the little woman what the little woman your little woman your wife tell me your wife is not really your wife she is an agent of Interzone Incorporated. You must kill her. Kill Joan Lee. It must be done soon, this week. And it must be done real tasty. And the only thing I can think of is one of my favorite Simpsons moments of Bart getting a driver's license. It says he's 21. I think it says he's 18. So he and Martin and Milhouse and Nelson go to see a rated R movie, which happens to be Naked Lunch. You see them getting tickets and then coming out. Ed Nelson just saying, I can think of at least two things wrong with that title. Which is a perfect way to sum it up. But yeah, I think only someone with a mind like Cronenberg can do it. You know, maybe a Terry Gilliam. We saw what he did with Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. There were elements, but Thompson and Burroughs, although on kind of, you know, had some similarities with their personalities and with their thoughts and feelings, very different. And, you know, Gilliam, I think, has that quirkiness, that kind of wink and humor that Thompson had. And Cronenberg had that kind of darker, deeper understanding of base human instincts that Burroughs had. Yeah, something just beyond this realm or this dimension that is lurking there. And he does a good job of, of that paranoid feeling. Like something is out there to get me. Somebody is after me and it's right around the corner. And it's, or it might be this thing right in front of me. It's wet and rubbery, oh, yeah. usually. It might be this thing right right here. It might be this typewriter it's, I'm using. In it, fact, it is. It's a beautiful woman, but it's also a 
a fish. A fish-type penis creature <laughs> that's gross-looking. Um, yeah, I mean, you look at Videodrome, that's not... That's the closest to a Burroughs-type story that you can get without being yep. Burroughs. Um, and that's a perfect example of why Cronenberg can can do something like that. Yeah, he does a good job of capturing that uh, that anxiety that just lurks in the psyche of everybody and to constantly thinking is this what is happening and am i acting accordingly to the way the paradigm is shaped and if i don't does that have consequence yes and for you uh, rick and morty fans maybe you know mm-hmm. watch those movies and you'll understand why rick calls the mutated monsters he creates by accident, Cronenbergs. <laughs> Boy, Morty, I really Cronenberg the world up, didn't I? You got a whole planet of Cronenbergs walking around down there, Morty. Uh, at least they're not in love with you anymore, though. It's a huge step in the right direction. Oh my god, it's a living nightmare! And, uh, I mean, in the film, it's a tall order to uh, play the lead, but Peter Weller pulls it off. Yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, you can only get someone equally. Because, uh, <laughs> again, you'll get James Woods, too. Right. In video drum, you got to get someone on that level to get to get it, to be able to. I'm, I've had my foot in that realm. I know what this is. I know that paranoia. I know that feeling. I know that hatred of and love of my own humanity that's beautiful and ugly at the same time. Yeah, so if that's something you haven't seen, if you're fans of the weird, bizarre, bordering on horror, I mean, I would call it horror. It's horrifying, but you can't. Yeah, it's horror. But you can't really. I mean, Cronenberg is his own thing. Burroughs is his own thing. It uh, takes elements of all of those. and uh, It's nightmare fuel. It's nightmarish, yeah. Yeah. So it's very unique. Yeah. Something something to see. And if you do like horror, um, we are going to be releasing a Halloween. we got the spooky season approaching. We love it. It's our favorite time of year. Uh, I'm going to do a Halloween horror movie connection special. Just talking through how a lot of different horror elements are connected. Uh, so I think that might be a two-part episode so stay tuned for that so you know again this week we kind of talked about how uh the board game clue obviously inspired the movie clue um one of the actors who played the first to die in the movie uh leaving was a the lead singer of the band fear punk rock band who had a pretty memorable performance on saturday night live a memorable cast member from Saturday Night Live, Phil Hartman, created the uh, album cover for Steely Dan's Aja. Steely Dan got their name from the William S. Burroughs novel Naked Lunch. Oh, that's, uh, we're connected. That's how we get there from uh, all the way from Clue to Naked Lunch. You've think, done it again. You don't think it can be done, but it is. So if you're out there, uh, if you're listening, if you're liking the podcast, if you're not liking the podcast, if you're mediocre about the podcast, reach out to us. Uh, let us know what you think. What What are your thoughts? Uh, what's something that we can connect? 
uh, I, you know, we'd like a challenge. Let's see if we can do it. Uh, again, we're available. You can reach us at Gmail. It's uh, thepcccast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at thepcccast. On Instagram, on the Pop Culture Connection. We have a Facebook group, too. Um, so until next time, stay connected.